as we open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 to begin the prophetic section of the book, we are faced with an awesome scene. Our chapter sets up two powerful men, a little horn speaking great things, and a son of man who was given the right to rule the world by the Ancient of Days. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson. Texas uses as their mascot this gigantic longhorn. One of the things I love about being a Texan is to be able to go out on a ranch, and one of my friends has these beautiful longhorns, and they're an unbelievable beast. When I look at Bevo, I mean, that longhorn is incredible. You see, we use animals to represent our teams. Like, for example, the Midlothian Panthers. We all know that as American citizens... We have the United States, and our, our animal is a eagle. The United States is the eagle. I was raised fearing the bear. Who's the bear? Russia. So you go on and on. And we also, like in World War II, up until World War II, there was a lion that ruled from the rising of the sun. The sun never set on the lion. What was that? So you're all familiar. Within our culture... We use symbols of animals to picture nations. As you open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, we've got this incredibly dramatic scene for the children here. It's like you're out in the ocean, and the ocean's scary. In fact, it's really scary when the wind starts to blow from four different directions. That's the picture here, and it churns the ocean up into these gigantic waves. And suddenly, as you're looking at this stormy, hurricane-force ocean that's so destructive and you're scared to death, you know, because your ship's being tossed to and fro as you look at this raging sea, suddenly out of the ocean comes this lion that has the wings of an eagle. And you see this lion rampaging. Then you have a bear that comes up out of the ocean. The bear has... And the bear has like three ribs. It's already been chewing on somebody. That's three ribs in its mouth, and it's devouring much flesh. And it's a weird bear. It's raised up on one side. Then you have a winged leopard. And leopard, and this is a weird leopard. It's kind of like the kind of leopard you see in a in a video game because it has four heads. So it's a four-headed leopard. It's unlike any leopard you've ever seen. And then finally, you have this incredibly monstrous, devastating, indescribable. In fact, this beast is so ugly that they don't even name him. This beast has ten horns, and it's, it has iron teeth, and it's crushing its enemies, and it never even names who this beast is. This beast has ten horns on its head. And suddenly another horn rises up and defeats three of the horns and boasts great things. He has an incredible skill in communication, and he's very arrogant, and he defies the God of heaven. We learn further in the book of Daniel that this little little horn, this beast, starts to attack those that worship the true Lord. Then we go from this this scene, I'm describing chapter 7 to you. As you look at Daniel chapter 7, you go from this scene of raging ocean and these four weird beasts that come up in succession and they fight against one another and the lion is defeated by the bear and the bear is defeated by the leopard and then the leopard is defeated by this ugly fourth beast. 
And then this little horn rises up. Suddenly everything gets calm. And you have this vision of this old man. You know he's old because he has gray hair, only white hair. Like I have gray hair, my brother has white hair. And so Harry has white hair, and he's the venerable Harry this morning, okay? So we see this picture of this, this hoary-headed ancient man, not a symbol of weakness, but a symbol of absolute wisdom. He's the ancient of days, which means it's a word that could mean that he's the originator of time. He's the one that was there in the beginning. He has total control over time. Then we have him clothed in radiant white garments. He's attended by thousands upon thousands of these supernatural beings. I mean, you talk about a dramatic sight. And it says that he has a chariot. And he's come with his chariot. And then he sets up a throne. What does all that mean? Then it says the books are open. And we then go back to this, this other scene where the beast is fighting. And the beast is strutting his stuff and speaking great things and attacking the people of God. It says the books are open. The beast is grabbed. He's thrown into a fiery judgment. Then we have a vision for the first time of a human being, someone that is like a human. In other words, a man comes to the ancient of days. And whoever this man is, he's called the son of man, which in Aramaic and also in Hebrew, a son of something means it's a way of just saying he's a human being. And we'll talk more about that. But whoever this human being is, the ancient of days hands to him the rule over all the nations of the world. He becomes a world leader. So we have to ask the question, who in the world are these four beasts? Who in the world is that fourth beast? The ten horns that rise up. Who in the world is this little horn that boasts great things? What's the vision of the ancient of days? What do we need to learn from that? And then who is this mysterious son of man? Let's turn to Daniel chapter 7 and see if we can get the answers to some of those questions. Let's start out. First of all, we want to talk about the four beasts. We're going to talk about the four beasts. We're going to talk about the ancient of days. Then we're going to talk about that beast that rises up because the text is going to focus on him. And then we're going to end with the vision that I just described with you of the Son of Man. Let's begin with the four beasts. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So we go back in time. When we finish chapter 6, Belshazzar had already been cast out of ruling. Remember in Daniel 5, the writing was on the wall. The Persians took over the empire. Belshazzar, that was ruling as a co-regent with his father Nabonidus, was killed that night by the Persian armies coming in under the wall. And we studied that. You can go back if you missed it. And you can watch it on the, you listen to it on the internet. But we, we're going back in time. The year is about 550. It's about 10 years before Belshazzar met his end by the Persians. So we're at the very end when this dream took place, we're at the very end of the kingdom that in chapter 2 was the head of gold, which was identified as the Babylonian Empire. I've given you the time period of the Babylonian Empire. It started there in about 626, and it ended about 539. That's when Cyrus was able to come in under the walls of Babylon and destroy the city. So we're introduced. We're going back to the Babylonian kingdom and Daniel had a dream. Visions passed through his mind as he, was li- as he was lying in his bed. 
and he wrote down the substance of his dream. That's why we can read it today. And it shows you that in ancient times, they not only received, like a prophet like Daniel, not only received visions from God, but he would write them down. Aren't you thankful this morning that he wrote those things down? And then it was passed down. Just think of the wonder. I'm not going to spend a lot of time above. Just think of the wonder of being able to read this book now since about 550 B.C., all the way down to 2008, we've got a record. And it was preserved by faithful disciples that listened to Daniel. That's what's going on here. I could give you many references, but you might be in a college classroom with a young student someday, and they'll tell you, well, this isn't the inspired word of God. They hardly knew how to write, and they didn't write things down, and it was all oral tradition. No, it wasn't. This is clear evidence. Yeah, there was a lot of oral tradition. By the way, their oral tradition was really accurate, much better than ours. But I also want you to know that there's a strong record that Moses wrote things down, that Jeremiah wrote things down. In fact, Jeremiah had his scroll burned up by the king of Israel that took one parchment page after another and threw it into the fire. And then he had Baruch, his scribe, rewrite it again. And now we have Daniel writing things down so we can read it. Daniel's now describing in his writing what he saw. In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me were four winds of the heaven churning up the great sea. But I want you to understand that in Daniel's setting, the great sea, remember when I taught you Genesis chapter 1, that the great sea for an Israelite represents the chaos. Israelites were not Navy SEALs. They didn't like the water. And so for them, when they went out in the Mediterranean and got in terrible storms, they looked upon that as the forces seeking to destroy all of life. In chapter 2, we had the picture of the nations from man's perspective. And you need to understand that. When you look at the governments of the world, when you go to Washington, there's an awe in Washington. When you go to Paris and you see the Louvre and you see all this history, when you go to London and you see the great parliamentary building, when you go to even Canada and you go to Ottawa and they have this beautiful parliamentary building. It looks just like the British Parliament, only it's on the Ottawa River, high and lifted up on this cliff. It's gorgeous. There's something dazzling about that. That's why our senators, when they go there, how many of you notice that most of them never come back to Ennis? Because there's something dazzling about being in the seat of power. I want you to understand that. As a believer, I want you to know that that there's a great pull into the seats of authority. One of the things I want to teach you is that you're realistic about that pull, and there's a wonder of thinking that you have so much power, that you're so, that you deserve so much, and this wondrous kingdom, and it's powerful, and it's indestructible and all that. Daniel 7 comes back and warns you that you look at the world, It is going to be until the time that Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom. You're going to have people that are going to say, we can have peace on earth. We can have no more war. We can abolish all weapons, and we can have peace. I want you to know as a believer that that's a lie. You need to be very realistic about the beastly nature of the competition of the nations. When they had the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, I was with Harry Ballback, my dad's associate, who was a Marine that fought in World War II. 
when we were walking down the streets of Lake Placid, you, we all saw that on the news when you watch this little Adirondack town, and it was when the United States was fighting. It was right in the middle of the Cold War, so it was really much more exciting. We were fighting against the Russians, trying to beat them in hockey, and how powerful that would be. And Harry Baumbach suddenly turned to me because we had all these different nationalities around. He says, Dave, I haven't felt like this since World War II. He said the athletic competition was very similar to the competition of war, the seething jealousy of one another and fighting one another. And I like the, the Olympics much better than world wars. But I want you to know, as you look towards the election, whatever happens in the election, I'm going to predict what's going to happen over the next four years. Nations going to rise up against nations. And kingdoms going to rise up against kingdoms. And there's going to be wars and rumors of war. So don't be afraid. Because your Savior's already told you that. That's what, the, what Daniel is very realistic. If, if, if you're in politics, the very first beast reminds what you need to be about. In the, you need to understand that when the Babylonians rise up and their armies march, that there's terrible violence that there's terrible destruction, and that that's not part of God's heart, but it's part of what's happening because of the fall of human beings, because of the introduction of the dragon Satan into the world. And you need to be very realistic about the power of evil. You're not naive about it. You don't think you can control it by human techniques. You don't think you can control it by your plans. But you're also not someone that withdraws. Because it tells us here about this first beast. The Daniel said in my night vision, I saw this lion. He had wings of an eagle. This is Nebuchadnezzar attacking the Egyptians, very swift and powerful. And I watched until the wings were torn off. So Nebuchadnezzar later in his reign backed away from his aggressive military attacks. And it says that he stood on the ground. He, he had two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given to him. Now, that should remind you of Daniel chapter 4. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar rose up and became prideful and the Lord punished him and he became like a beast for seven years? But then he looked up and he saw the Lord God of heaven and he humbled himself. And then the Lord restored his kingdom. And one of the principles I want to remind you Daniel had an influence in the beastly kingdom, recognizing the lion-like qualities of Babylon. This was the kingdom that took him away from home when he was 14. It murdered many of his friends. It marched them as slaves 500 miles away from home, and he never saw home again. So if you think your life is a big zero and you should be angry against God and God's lost control and you're sitting here this morning saying there's no hope, Daniel had much better arguments for rejecting the great I am, but he didn't. Instead, for all of his life, he lived in the lion kingdom and by the power of the Spirit of God, because he was wise, because he was honest, because he was a man of purity, because he was a man that had the spirit of the living God living in him, he even touched the life of a Nebuchadnezzar and made him more humane. In your office, you're in your office. I know your office is like the office on TV. I know that there's jealousy. 
I know that there's competition. I know that there's hate. I know that there's people that let you down. I know that your boss makes you promises and then rejects it. That's what Daniel's telling you. Hey, you live in the beastly kingdom where God's perfect will isn't done on earth. But you can be like Daniel. You can make your office more humane. One of your prayers, whoever gets elected on Tuesday, you need to pray that our government, because we get a chance to represent it as we vote, we need to pray that it won't be beastly, that it will be humane. All of you can pray for that, can't you? In fact, if your candidate doesn't win, I'm going to challenge you as your pastor, the only thing that will keep you like Daniel is for you to pray regularly for the person that gets elected. And you're commanded to do that. And one thing you should be thankful of, you don't live in a country that says, who cares if thousands of people drowned in New Orleans? Man, your Baptist brothers jump in their trucks, and man, they're on the scene with a Thousands of your other brothers and sisters, aren't you thankful for that? Your government catches it in the neck because they didn't plan very well. That's humane. If you were without your house, your house got blown out in Galveston, wouldn't you want someone to show up? What's caused that? Because you live in a nation that's been strongly influenced by Daniel-like people. The spirit of the living God. You live in a country where even both the candidates had to go to Rick Warren and they had to present their views before people like you that believe in Jesus. Don't be discouraged. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't being interviewed by Rick Warren. So whatever happened, he had it much worse than we do. Amen? So you're not discouraged this morning. I want one of the greatest joys that I have is to see you influence in the schools in the doctor's offices, in the hospitals, in the, in the business where you're a part, the cement plant. I can sit down with a leader of the cement plant, and, they, and they're actually working to help you breathe better. I'm on it. Really, they are. So we don't become like, in other words, that's a, that's a great thing. And that's happened because I've been here for 35 years because I've had really precious brothers and sisters that love Jesus, that live right here in Midlothian, and they don't want their kids to get cancer of the lung so they be are more humane they are in meetings making hard decisions sometimes decisions that cost money that's what daniel did and you can do that can't you isn't that awesome the first beast reminds us we can still have an influence but you also need to remember that the kingdoms come and the kingdoms go administrations come and administration goes, and one of the things this text is saying, it looks like a great big mess and a stormy sea, but there's a God who's writing the script. So he's able to predict. In 550, he's able to tell Daniel the Babylonian Empire doesn't have very long. Notice they only had, man, they had less than, they didn't even make it 200 years. Most world kingdoms last for a couple hundred years. This one doesn't even make it. Boy, what, look at 626, 539. You do the math, it's not even, you know, a little bit over 100 years or thereabout. And they were gone. They were invincible. During, when Nebuchadnezzar ruled, no one could conquer. Cyrus joined with the Medes. Cyrus attacked Lydia to the east. Then he attacked Babylon. Then he attacked Egypt, and he beat all of them. And then he got all of those armies together and he gathered together around these gigantic walls of Babylon 
He had three ribs in his mouth like a great big lumbering bear. He was raised up on one side because the, the Persians were more dominant in the Persian Empire than the Medes. They were the stronger people. And Cyrus destroyed the lion. So we have the second beast. It doesn't tell us that much except what I just described to you. The second beast was like a bear. And I've dealt a little bit like with bears. I've told you about that. Don't mess with them. So the Persians were very powerful for a time period. The time period is from 539 to 330. So they lasted a little bit longer, about 200 years. And then it says, and then I looked again. They devoured much flesh, but then before me was another beast, and one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. This is the Greek Empire. We're going to talk a lot about the Greek Empire and the Persian Empire in chapter 8. You can all look at your ancient history, go back and review a little bit. Alexander the Great was known for his swift, powerful phalanxes that put together a new technology, a new shield formation, conquered all the world, all the way to India, all the way into Afghanistan. If you're a soldier in Afghanistan, you can go to castles that Alexander the Great built, this king that was the leopard. Right at the height of his power, the young man in his 30s, he suddenly died in Babylon. He was drunk. He was very immoral, and it destroyed his health, and he was cut off. His four generals divided the world into four heads. And until the Romans begin to stomp around and six, six, really they conquer the Greeks in 63, a little bit before the time of Christ, the Greek empire buys back and forth between these four heads. Daniel doesn't have that much to say about them right now. He'll have a lot more to say as we get into chapter 8. Then in the vision of the night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening, and it was very powerful. So whatever this fourth beast is, it's military might. I want you to notice that the power in the central authority of the king is getting weaker, but the power of the metals is getting like gold is not nearly as strong as silver. Silver is not nearly as strong as bronze, and bronze doesn't hold a candle to steel, I mean to iron. Like if you have iron weapons against bronze weapons, guess who's going to win? Texas Tech is going to win. Then it says, he had large iron teeth, and they crushed and devoured its victims, trampled them underfoot. It was different from all the former beasts, and it has ten horns. So whatever this fourth beast is, the Roman Empire in the book of Daniel, because Daniel in chapter 8 will identify the Medo-Persian as one. Like if you go to a college classroom, they're going to tell you that the fourth, probably, if you go to UT or something like that or to Yale like my son did, they're going to tell you that the third kingdom or the fourth kingdom is Greece, and they make the Medes and Persians divided. The Medes and Persians, ne the Medes never had a world empire that was disunited from the Persians. In chapter 8, verse 20, Daniel tells you himself that the, that the empire is the Medo-Persian empire. So I take it that the fourth kingdom is the kingdom of Rome, which is going to bring us right down close to the time of Jesus, and in chapter 9, Daniel's going to talk to us about the time of the anointed one that was cut off. In chapter 7, it's painting in big breaststrokes, kind of this big general scenario. The Syrian ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, rose in power. The Roman general in 63 B.C. fought against Antiochus, threatened him. He was overwhelming. The Roman legions were the Iron Legions. They had ships. They had galleys. They were incredible. And they drew a circle 
around Antiochus. And they said, if you step out of that circle, you're a dead man. And he had to submit. And that was the ending of the leopard's control over the world and this great fourth beast, which is going to rule beginning in 63. And then it just kind of eases away during the Middle Ages. And our culture, for example, how many of you know what a Corinthian column is? How many of you know what an Ionian column is? How many of you know what Roman law is? How many remember studying about Julius Caesar? Okay, how many of you remember studying about the Japanese series of empires? Your culture as Americans is a Western culture, and it flows right out of the combination of a Greek-Roman worldview. And so I believe that what the Scripture is teaching us is that this dominant Western culture has a big role to play. And Daniel it doesn't tell you that the fourth beast is destroyed except we have this final, final mysterious manifestation of a ten. Remember Daniel's image with the ten toes that were partly iron and partly clay, partly strong, partly weak? This little horn rises up. Here we go again. Somehow out of this great western confederation of nations, there arises a little horn. I was thinking... And another little horn came up, and three of the first horns were, were uprooted. Evidently, he destroys three of the ten nations. And then he has eyes like the eyes of a man. So he, the eyes are symbols in the Old Testament of, of great insight. But in a, when they're used of evil, they're used of haughtiness and prideful arrogance. Like, like a, an immoral woman, for example, in Proverbs will be, dist- be described as a woman who has haughty eyes. So watch it, young boys. An immoral woman has arrogant eyes. A wicked man has cold, arrogant, prideful eyes. He also has a strong mouth. One of the most powerful demonstrations, like J. Vernon McGee. Anybody have heard of J. Vernon McGee? When I was a kid, he he was my dad's friend, and I spent a lot of time with J. Vernon. J. Vernon McGee, during World War II, as I've often taught you, J. Vernon believed that Hitler was this little horn. Well, Hitler had the spirit of this little horn. And he had a really, we think of him because of Charlie Chaplin as a cartoon figure. In the 30s, Hitler was no cartoon figure. Charles Lindbergh, who flew over the Atlantic the first time, was captivated by Hitler. He loved Hitler. He loved what Nazism. It's always easy to have hindsight. But one of the things I want you to learn Watch out for leaders with mouths, and that works both on Democrats and Republicans. And the biggest thing is watch out when we worship military power. Hitler was pushing the Wehrmacht, pushing the development of might, and he claimed he made German soldiers swear allegiance not to the Constitution but to him. I'm going to tell you very concretely, If you're ever in a situation where any political leader in any country asks you to swear allegiance to them personally, you say no, and you face the consequences like Daniel did. That's what Daniel's teaching you. I also want you to be aware, you need to learn as a person, watch out for the tongue. I can use my speaking gift to lead you astray. So you need to pray for me. A political leader can use their speaking gift 
to boast great things. So one of the things we pray, whoever gets elected, is that they will be humble, power corrupt, and absolute power corrupt, absolutely. So whoever gets elected, McCain or Obama, one of our prayers is help them to have a humble mouth. Because what real leadership is, like you've all heard their plans. I'm going to tell you something that I'm thinking a lot about. You've, how many of you have heard their economic plans? How many of you have heard their foreign policy plans? How many of you have heard what they're going to do on taxes? How many of you have heard what they're going to do about the economy? Now, here's what you need to really pray. You know what real leadership is? Real leadership is not the plans that you make now for the future. You know what real leadership is? When the totally unexpected hits, that you act wisely, humbly, that you listen, and that you're able to not feel that if we say it, it's done as a leader, both as church leaders, as business leaders, as daddy leaders. Like one of my things is like I use my tongue a lot. So it's easy for me to assume if I say it, it's done. And Winston Churchill gave some really good insight, and it's insight in this chapter. Just boasting great things with your mouth doesn't get it done. So what we really need to pray is that in the next four years, President Bush was totally unprepared for 9-11. Everybody was. Everybody was. Nobody predicted what would happen in Wall Street. Sure, people made statements, but come on. I don't remember anybody standing up, oh, the nation's going to be in a terrible crisis. We didn't have a prophet, did we? What real leadership is, is to respond to what actually happens in life. What really happened in your family? What really happened in your job? What really happened in our church family? Real leaders are walking with God, trusting God. They don't just trust their mouth. They actually lean upon the Spirit. And they never rely just upon their own power. Antichrist at the end of time is going to worship military power. And that leads us to the calm scene. It's the ancient of days step forth. We're all concerned. All this war is going on. As this, I looked and thrones were set up. Mary was studying this this week. She says, praise God, I want the thrones to be set up. And I want the judge to sit. I want all of you to know, if you're afraid this morning, our country is at a big transition. Got great news for you. My son Jonathan will tell you, in Morocco till this day, the king travels around the country. And they've done this for hundreds of years. In the ancient Near East, the king didn't have just a throne in Babylon. He had a wandering, traveling throne. You know why? Because he would bring his throne to Midlothian with all its pomp and circumstance. In the ancient world, it was a chariot with all lots of chariots around it, thousands of troops. Daniel uses that image. God uses that image. He pictures himself as a great Ancient of days, elderly, white-haired, totally pure, totally wise, totally just. That's what all the fire is about. And he rides on the scene of planet Earth. Aren't you glad for that? I am so thankful for that. The ancient of days, in the midst of all the tumult of the nations, as God's child, I don't need to be afraid. 
Because the Ancient of Days, it's calm, and he comes and sets up his throne. And it says here that he's attended, he has flaming fire coming from his throne. The wheels of his chariots were ablaze. You kids should want to draw this. It's so incredibly exciting. The river of fire was like a, like a volcanic river of molten metal flowing forth from it. Thousands upon thousands attending him. The court seated and the books were opened. How many of you ever wonder? It just isn't right. How many of you have ever said it just isn't right? I can't believe what that judge did. I can't believe anybody ever said that. I want you to trust this morning. Your heavenly judge of the universe, the ancient of days, is keeping a book of all of your deeds, of all of Obama's deeds, of all of McCain's deeds, of all of Putin's deeds, of all of the, the uh, prime minister of Germany. She's a believer, a woman. Forget her name right now, Elliot. And then the new prime minister of Israel. Everybody, God is keeping a record. And he's keeping a record in this context of Antichrist. And Antichrist is strutting his stuff on planet Earth. And he's destroying God's people. Revelation builds it. He's killing thousands of believers. Much worse than even what Hitler did to the German Jews. But the books are going to be opened. And notice it says, it says, Then I continue watching. The little horn was speaking boastful things. It's not wise to boast against the Ancient of Days. I kept looking, and the beast was slain. Hardly, it doesn't even mention, not much of a fight. It just says the beast was slain. His body was destroyed. He was thrown into the blazing fire. Perfect justice. The other beasts that had been stripped of their authority, in other words, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, had been allowed to continue their influence. We're still experiencing their influence today. Like, we're in the Middle East, and we're reminded of all the archaeological things in Babylon so that the influence of Iraq and the influence of Persia, which is Iran, is all continuing. The influence of the Roman Empire is influencing our nation. God let it continue for a while, but this final kingdom, the final manifestation of the anti-God forces, the anti-Christ forces, it's going to be the end. And then I want to close with this. This is incredible. We're going to get ready to celebrate Christmas in order to really understand Jesus coming in the ancient world, you need to understand this. It says, in my vision, I looked, and there was one like the Son of Man who was coming with the clouds of heaven. In the Old Testament, a deity comes with the clouds of heaven. So a divine being comes with a cloud. He approached the ancient of days. He was led into his presence. And I love this. He was given authority. Don't you hunger for someone that has total justice, total purity, and he does it right? He uses his authority right. The Son of Man is going to do that. It said he was given glory. That's what we just did this morning. We gave the Son of Man, we gave Jesus glory. So you're getting in on the glory that Jesus is going to receive. Right now you're getting in on it early. It says he was given sovereign power over all peoples, nations, men of every language. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's my Savior. That's the one that I love. Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. Its original meaning was just a human being, a humble, not very special human being. And the first time Jesus came, he came just to be one of us. But Daniel 7 predicted 
500 years before Jesus came, that he would ultimately be the one that would rule and reign. Listen to these words. It says, therefore God exalted him to the place of highest praises. He gave him a name that's above every name, that at the very name of Jesus, Son of God, every knee will bow. So in heaven and earth below, every knee would bow. Every tongue will proclaim that Jesus, he reigns with the angels. Gather round ye children. That's our prayer this morning. On this day where I'm sure that a lot of you are worried about this transition in our nation, what I want to get across to you is it's okay. Kingdoms will come and go. And Daniel's promising us that the beasts rise out of the sea, but the Ancient of Days decides how long they rule, decides how far they can attack, how much damage they can do, and eventually the incredible Savior that stretched out his hands for us, the Son of Man, is going to be handed the kingdom of the world. Amen? Isn't that incredible? And we've been given the precious time now to go to all the nations and give them an invitation to join this incredible Son of Man freely, willingly, to respond to his grace. There's nothing better to pour your life into. I want to worship. I want Jesus to have authority. I want him to have sovereignty. Late last night, I was just praying. and said, Dear Lord Jesus, I want to capture a vision of the Ancient of Days. I want to capture a vision of his justice. And I want to use all of my strength to help us all to fall in love with this incredible, ultimate human being that's far more than a human being. He's God's divine son. And therefore, we have hope. We have hope because we're not trusting just in the present donkey or the present elephant or the present eagle or the present bear. We're trusting in the lamb, the lamb that was slain.